Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Now it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside ten curtains. Then Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought up the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Father, we thank you once again that uh, we can gather together and learn from your word and love one another and just be brought up and growing in our most holy faith. Have your way today, Lord. We ask in your name. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. In his book, I'd Like You More If You Were More Like Me, John Orberg tells this true story concerning himself. He writes, It was the most unforgettable speaking moment that I've ever had. We were hosting a conference that drew church leaders from around the country. The place was packed. I'd been asked at the last minute to do a reading of Psalm 150. You got to read it with enthusiasm, said my friend Nancy, who was directing the service. So I started reading fast and loud and kept getting more exuberant. Praise the Lord. Praise God in the sanctuary. Praise him in the mighty heavens. Praise him for his acts of power. Praise him for surpassing greatness. After this rousing introduction, the psalm is basically a list of instruments. Praise him with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise him with a harp and lyre. Praise him with timbrel and dancing. Praise him with the strings and pipe. Praise him with the clash of cymbals. Praise him with the resounding cymbal. By now, I was shouting. If they wanted energy, I'll give them energy. The last line would be the best, where it reads, Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. But that's not what I said. I said, let everything that has breast praise the Lord. Did I just say what I think I just said? The house erupts. Yep. I stand on the stage waiting for the people to stop laughing 
trying to figure out what to say next. Maybe I could tell them that it was from the Message Bible and blame it all on Eugene Peterson. <laughs> but they never stopped laughing. I finally just walked off the stage. I never did finish the psalm. Orberg finishes by saying, it's a funny thing. My job involves trying to help people live more closely connected to God by teaching under the authority of Scripture with as much diligence and skill as I can muster. And yet what I will always be remembered for is my Freudian slip of Psalm 150. I'd like to ask us all a question this morning. What do we want to be remembered for? On the day that we die, right after the funeral, when everyone comes back here to eat potato salad, what are the things that we want people to remember about us? I imagine the thing that you will say about me is, well, at least the church isn't driving him crazy anymore. Now pass me that spinach dip. Welcome back to our study in 2 Samuel. This morning we're going to see that David wanted to build a house for the Lord. And even though that seems like a good and a godly request, God says no to it. And so David will not be remembered as the man who built the temple, but he will be known for something much greater. He will be forever known as a man after God's own heart. But what do we do when God says no to what we consider a very spiritual prayer. Look at verse 1 with me. Now it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. Let me provide a quick background of where we are at this moment. If you recall, the last time that we saw David, he was dancing with all of his might out of the joy of the ark being returned to Jerusalem. He had tried to move the ark the wrong way, and it had cost Uzzah his life. But now David moves it according to God's prescribed instructions, and now David has the joy of the Lord. Why is that? Because David moved from expedience to obedience. Now, although moving the ark with the cart seemed like a better and easier way, it wasn't the way that the Lord had commanded it to be done. And by the way, one of the byproducts of obedience is joy. And as a side note, I think that joy is one of the indicators that someone truly knows the Lord. Now, this doesn't mean you have to dance and shout but it should be something that marks our life in some way. But you can look at some Christians, and they can't even muster up a smile. It looks like they have had Botox injections. Someone said that you can measure spiritual maturity by what it takes to steal your joy. Now, we aren't given the time frame between chapters 6 and 7, but in verse 1, we see David dwelling in his house, and it says that the Lord had given him rest from all of his enemies. Here we see David in a rare season of rest. 
With no one attacking her, Israel was finally experiencing some peace and tranquility. Now look back at the text, the place where the scene opens. Where is David, and what adjective does the writer use to describe the condition of David? David is in his palace, and he is settled. There is in this opening scene a picture of Sabbath rest. Everything is complete, and everything is good. And it's time for just a while to rest in the presence of God and to enjoy the goodness and the provision of God. But David can't rest. He can't enjoy the goodness of God. He can't because he is living in a house of cedar while the Ark of the Covenant still resides in a tent. David is an interesting man. Because during this season of rest, please notice what he is doing. He's mauling over godly matters in the presence of a godly man. And let me say, the way a person spends their leisure time says a great deal about them. For example, I understand that there is some sort of football game on tonight. Now, for those of us who are more spiritual, instead of wasting our time watching such secular nonsense, we are going to meet here tonight and just read the book of Leviticus over and over. This is what happens when the Vikings get knocked out. But seriously, let me give us some great advice. Be very watchful and careful when God gives you an extended time of rest and peace. Now, why would I say that? Because we can have the propensity to drop our guard when the warfare abates. Often, this is when the enemy will hit us the hardest because we can have the proclivity to not be as diligent as we normally might be. And so sometimes rest can quickly turn into vicious warfare. Don't believe me? I've got two words for you. Family vacation. I won't ask for a show of hands, but how many times have you been threatened with or have threatened with these words? I'll turn this car around. I swear I will. And so David tells Nathan, Look, man, here I am living in a house of cedar, but the ark of the Lord is still sitting in a tent. During his years of exile, David had vowed to the Lord that he would build him a temple, and his bringing the ark to Jerusalem was surely the first step in fulfilling that vow. Now, it troubled David that he was living in a comfortable stone house with cedar paneling, while God's throne was still in a tent. And he shared his burden with Nathan. Now this is the first appearance of Nathan in the scripture. Gad had been David's prophet during the exile, but Nathan will now be the one that we hear from. This was the house that had been built by the carpenters and masons who had been sent to David by Hiram, king of Tyre, along with a supply of cedar wood. Now we know very little about this edifice, but the use of cedar suggests some level of opulence. 
and conquering his enemies round about him and receiving gifts and tribute, David would eventually possess the equivalent of over $1 billion. No wonder that according to the historian Josephus, his palace was magnificent in both size and splendor. Now David could have been like Nebuchadnezzar. He could have taken credit for all these things that he had accomplished. And that's usually what happens. Statistically, the wealthier a person becomes, the smaller his percentage of his income that they will give to the work of the Lord. David, however, was completely different. Here he's saying, I want to do more for the Lord than I have ever done. And this is a beautiful part of David's character. As he meditates on God, how God has blessed him, unlike the man in Luke, David doesn't think, I'm going to tear down my barn and build bigger barns. Instead, his attention and his focus goes to the Lord. Now, in the ancient world, what did kings do when they had no wars to fight? Well, Nebuchadnezzar surveyed his city and boasted, is not this the great Babylon that I have built? Solomon collected wealth and wives, entertained foreign guests, and wrote books. But it appears that in David's leisure hours, the king thought about the Lord and conferred with his chaplain Nathan about improving the spiritual condition of the kingdom of Israel. You see, David wasn't simply a ruler. He was a shepherd with a heart concern for the people underneath him. And so he asked Nathan for advice about what to do next. And like that, sometimes we can wonder about the guidance of God. Now, of course, on moral issues on which God has spoken, we don't have to wonder about that. All we have to do is open the Bible and apply its truth to our lives. But sometimes we come across issues that are not right or wrong. They are right or left. Things like, should I buy this car or should I take this job? In those cases, with all things being equal, what do you do? Do you wait for a voice from heaven in every mundane area of life? Believe it or not, we had a lady at our old church that said that God told her every single day what clothes she was supposed to wear. When people tell me things like that, I want to slowly back away from them while keeping eye contact. But here's what I think. In non-moral issues that aren't spelled out in Scripture, we simply acknowledge that He is the Lord, and then we can do whatever we want. It was Augustine who said, Love God, and then do what you please. So does that mean that I can love God and smoke crack, drink Mad Dog, and punch people I don't like? I will be praying for you. Absolutely not. Why? Because that would be the evidence that I truly didn't love God in the first place. Because if we truly do love the Lord, we will show our love to him 
by our obedience to the word. And plus, Mad Dog will make you put your face in the toilet as you watch those little air bubbles float up from the bottom. Good times, I tell you. Good times. Let me give you an example from Acts 15. It reads, Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying, You must be circumcised and keep the law to whom we gave no such commandment. Now listen to the next part of this on God's guidance. The Bible says, It seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. I love that. There was no prophecy or dream or visions. It was simply seemed good to them as they were all godly men who were in one accord about this. When we decided to upgrade our sound system, we didn't expect a voice from heaven to applaud our decision. We knew there was a need, and together we decided to move ahead with the upgrade. Once again, such issues like that aren't right or wrong. They are right or left. But sometimes, as in our account this morning, we need to be very sure that we are doing things exactly in the way that the Lord prescribes. Look at verse 3. Then Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build a house for me to dwell in? Now the only way that they could learn their error was by divine intervention in this. This time, however, it was not an outburst of anger, as in when Uzzah and the ark, but instead, this was just a word from God. We read, but that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. So, even though Nathan is a prophet, he makes a mistake here. In other words, now brace yourself for this, people are fallible. Even the Nathans of this world. So I would encourage us all, before we make a decision we are unsure of, study the scripture, get advice from a few different godly people, and then make sure you have the witness in your own heart. Now this is where it gets very interesting. Here Nathan, a prophet of God, drops the ball. But here is what is crucial in the understanding of this. This was not Nathan speaking as a prophet. Please notice that Nathan didn't preface his comment with, Thus saith the Lord. No, he simply looks at the situation, evaluates David's heart, and then basically says, David, go ahead and do all that is in your heart, since I know the Lord is for you. But he had received no word from the Lord on this matter, at least not until verse 5. Simply put, Nathan in his flesh got this one dead wrong. Have you ever given advice that you thought was from the Lord to somebody? But later on, God reveals to you that while your intentions were certainly good, he actually wasn't in agreement. 
Well, me neither, but people from other churches have done that. Do you know what this teaches us? We have to be extremely careful when we whom we receive spiritual advice from. But even more so, if that person erroneously thinks that they have a hotline to heaven. I've had people in the past, not here, thank God, that have told me things from the Lord that were so far off it bordered on comical. It's like when the British Christian writer Adrian Plass once wrote in his diary. He said, this morning the Lord told me to buy a tree frog and name it Kaiser Bill. Now look, while I do believe that the Lord can speak to us personally, it will always line up perfectly with both his will and his character and his word. But sometimes people with the very best of intentions are just way off. They would come to me and announce, I've got a word for you, brother. And after hearing it, I wanted to say, you know, friend, I got a word for you also. Please don't come off your medication again. Why? Because the best of human beings with the highest motives can often get things wrong. And this is especially true in our response to God. Frequently, it's because we don't truly understand and properly understand the situation in which we find ourselves. How important it is that we be those who say, Lord, I've got lots of ideas, plans, and dreams. I've got all kinds of ways to accomplish big things for your glory, but only if they are part of your plan. That is why we are told in 1 John 4.1 that we should try the spirits. Prophets are fallible when they are not speaking under the, under the direction of the Lord. And so are pastors. But this doesn't mean that Nathan is a false prophet. It simply means there needs to be evaluation and confirmation regarding any word that we would receive from God. Because we are unable to see as God sees, and therefore we are often incapable by our own abilities to discern things the proper way. This was also the case with David and Nathan and their concerns about the ark and the tent. But we notice immediately the striking way in which the Lord has referred to David here. He calls him, my servant David. In the first three verses of the chapter, we have seen him as the king, the king, the king. But here the Lord did not say, go and tell the king. He said, go and tell my servant David. Did you know that only Abraham, Moses, and Caleb had previously been called by the Lord, my servant? And while it's common enough in the language of the Bible for people to be called servants, and particular people servants of the Lord, in this context there is something wonderful about this reference by the Lord to David as being my servant. It recognizes the way in which David has humbled himself before the Lord in the previous chapter, and at the same time bestows on him a very high status indeed. 
The status comes not from the word servant, but from the one of whose servant he was. Verse 6, please. For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, David's desire to build God a house was biblical. For in Deuteronomy 12, God declared that there would come a time when he himself would choose a spot in the land of promise wherein people could come and seek him continually. And like David, we can have visions, ideas, and dreams that are biblical, spiritual, and noble. But that doesn't mean that they are in line with God's will. And like Nathan, we can say to others, that's a great idea, go for it, without seeking the Lord. And so that night, the Lord catches up with Nathan. And first, there's an initial command. David, you are not the one to build a house for me. I have moved from tent to tent with the people of God. To whom did I ever say, build me a house of cedar? Which is to say, where did you ever get that idea from, David? And the answer is, he got it from the anxiety of his good intentions. But God had not chosen David to be the one to build the temple. Why is that? Well, God gives his reason in 1 Chronicles 28 where we read this. Now David assembled at Jerusalem all the officials of Israel, the princes of the tribes and the commanders of the divisions that served the king, and the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds and the overseers of all the property and livestock belonging to the kings and his sons, with the officials and the mighty men, even all the valiant men. Then David rose to his feet and said, Listen to me, my brethren and my people. I had intended to build a permanent home for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God. So I had made preparations to build it. But God said to me, You shall not build a house for my name, because you are a man of war and have shed blood. David cannot build the house because he has shed so much blood, the Lord says. Now, this isn't an indictment upon David because outside of Uriah the Hittite, all the blood that David has shed has been the enemies of God. But God, for his own reasons, wanted his temple built by a man who was reigning during a time of peace because he is a God of peace supremely. Now listen, this is the most important part of the story. It is not the responsibility of the servant of God to be anxious about his or her good intentions. It's the responsibility of the servant of God to be diligent in his or her obedience to God. Because the anxiety of good intentions can blind you to what it is that God really wants to do in your life. I would write this down. The good thing can sometimes be the enemy of the God thing.
Now, this is impressive, and Nathan the prophet seems to think so as well. I mean, after all, how could such good intentions be wrong? They've got all the resources, there is no need for a capital campaign, and the king is willing to sacrifice whatever he must. And so Nathan affirms this plan and assures David that God is with him concerning this project. But God is not. You see, not only did David fall prey to the anxiety of good intentions, but so did Nathan, the prophet of God. Now some have therefore understood the question, would you build for me a house to dwell in, to be a rejection by God of the very idea of such an edifice being built at all. But this misses the subtlety of the Lord's words. The emphasis in the question is on the word you. Are you the one, David, who will build a house for me to dwell in? The question implies the answer, no, David, you are not the one, rather than, no, David, no houses, no houses to be built like that. Now, the full significance of this will only become clear in the second part of the Lord's message to David, where we will hear that someone else will build the house that David was not to build. Now, this does seem surprising, though. David was God's own king. He has shown himself to be faithful and righteous. Why would he not be the one to build this house? But please notice this. David does not throw a fit that he can't do what he wants to do. He doesn't try to do it anyway. He doesn't allow himself to be manipulated by the pressure and anxiety of good intentions. He has not let his ego become wrapped up in his accomplishments for the Lord. He does not fret over the fear that the task must be done by him or it won't be done at all. He hears and trusts God and he knows that God has the final word. And whether we like it or not, to whine about such things is just childish and immature. Sometimes, I think if there was just one verse that's not in the Bible but should be, it would be 1 Trepidations 1.1, where we would read, Just suck it up, saith the Lord. Now, we know that in many places, David's heart would become heavy and he would groan before the Lord. Just read the Psalms. But here's what I want us to understand. God commends groaning, but forbids grumbling. And the difference is, groaning is complaining to God, while grumbling is complaining about God. Groaning happens to God's face, while grumbling happens metaphorically behind God's back. In the Bible, the place where people groan is on their knees where they have been driven by sorrow, suffering, and adversity. But where do people most often grumble? Listen to what Moses told the children of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 1. Yet you were not willing to go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God, and you grumbled, whereat? In your tents, and said, because the Lord hates us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. That tells me that the place where we are most prone to grumble 
is in our very own homes where we think that we are in private and are free to exaggerate, blame, play the victim, and excuse our own lack of obedience. Well, as we close, now, what about you? Are you anxious over things that are not legitimately your responsibility? Are you being faithful and obedient to things that are your responsibility? Do you have the devotional life and the godly accountability to know the difference between those two things? And when God responds, are you faithful to go or to stop and most importantly, to trust that his ways are the best? The Apostle Paul faced a bit of anxiety in his life, and I like what he said about it. He said, Be anxious for nothing, but instead with prayer and supplication, make all of your requests known to God. And the peace of God that passes understanding will guard your heart in Christ Jesus. And Father, that is our desire. We want to do things your way, Lord. We want to be dead in the center of your will. And I pray, Lord, that the times that uh, we are out of your will, that you would gently lead us back into it. Help us, Lord, to understand the things that you want us to do and let us give our lives full force over into that. But if there are things, Lord, in our lives, even good things that are not in your will, Give us the wisdom and the ability to know those things and to lay them down. We never want the good things, Lord, to eclipse the God things. We want to do things your way. So give us the wisdom by your Holy Spirit. Open the eyes of our heart and show us the way to go. We ask in Christ's name, amen. This being the first Sunday of the month, Ask Pastor John and Elder Haynes to come up, please, for communion.